This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Tuesday, time for our crack strategy panel. And we begin with something Canadians of all political persuasions can agree on, at least to a point, and that is support for Ukraine. President Volodymyr Zelensky has just addressed a joint session of Parliament asking for more help. It was a very emotional address. He asked us to imagine if our cities, Vancouver, Toronto, were being bombed relentlessly the way his cities are. And of course, the request for help included support for a no-fly zone. Meanwhile, In the Conservative Party trenches, two new leadership candidates have announced since our panel last convened. Both Jean Charest and Patrick Brown are from the more moderate wing of the party. And it didn't take long for a nasty Twitter battle to erupt between Brown and the frontrunner Pierre Polièvre over that Harper-era NACAB policy. Brown has called Polyevre a racist, and Polyevre calls Brown a liar. As for Charest, he just tested positive for COVID, apparently mild symptoms, and we wish him all the best. So, what do you think? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740. For 740. And now I'd like to welcome John Capobianco, Senior Vice President and Senior Partner Fleischman Hillard High Road, Charles Souza, the former Minister of Finance for Ontario and MPP for Mississauga South, and Toronto City Councillor Anna Bailau, Ward 9, Davenport, who is Deputy Mayor for the South Area of the City. Welcome to you all. Thanks for being with us. Great to be here. Hey, everyone. Uh, let's begin with the address. Charles, uh, what did you make of it? it was, you know, it was such a compelling argument. It was a very personal message. He, he made us all feel the pain and human suffering that he's undergoing. The, the, he painted the picture, and it's hard to imagine uh, what uh, the, the toil that these individuals are suffering. But it's a complex issue. I mean, there's a moral imperative. There's an emotional issue, which is now colliding with the risk that uh, our leaders have to make. And in fact, all of the opposition uh, has issued off uh, their releases, including the leaders' uh, candidates for the Conservatives, saying, let's do everything possible. But what is possible and what he wants is the issue, and that's a no-fly zone, and that's a war with with Russia. It's a very delicate situation. All of us seems to want to send in the planes and make certain that these people are protected. And that is the that's the moral issue, and that's the compelling argument that he's asking for us to feel. And no one wants to take that risk. And that's that's a dilemma that we face. And it's really, really tough. It's so tough. Anna Bailau, uh, I'm sure as a city councillor, it resonated with you when he mentioned his cities and, and compared them to the situation in ours. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I think that's where he's been so powerful uh, with the way that he's been communicating to the world, is that he's He's made us feel, because we understand uh, how can it, that can impact uh, our own cities, our own communities, uh, our values, because it is, you know, it's a city just like many of the Canadian cities. Uh, and he's a really good, um, uh, he's been really good in, in, in ensuring that people understand that, yes, this is us now, it can be you tomorrow. Uh, and and I think that we realize that. I think that the world realizes that. I don't think anybody believes that Putin is going to just stop with with the Ukraine and that we realize that this is not only on the Ukrainian people. This is on our democratic values that we hold high. John Capobianco, uh, do you think this is possible that a, a policy on this could come into the conservative leadership race? 
I, I, yes, I think it would. I, I obviously, I think everybody seems to be on the same page and supporting the government uh, in, in one variation or another. Obviously, some somewhat, you know, the, the Canada get a bit more strong, stronger with respect to the um, the air zone. But you know, we've got a, a modern day Churchill here, and, and there's there's no you know no surprise that he's being compared to, to Churchill in a number of fronts with respect to rallying the troops and rallying the country at a time of difficulty. And, and obviously, you know, the fight with with Russia and Ukraine is not just that fight; it's it's a it's a worldwide fight, and it's all, it's all of our fights. And I think that's why. President Zelensky is is being available to to speak to the various you know parliaments and and you know uh, not only the UK ours the European Union and of course tomorrow the Congress U.S. Congress because I think he needs to have that that fight and that that ability to be able to keep the the you know the our our allies together on this because that's the only way we can do it. I do hear what Charles says with respect to the. Um, no-fly zone, and I think that's one of the reasons why not only the NATO and others have been a little bit reluctant, including the U.S., in sending in the troops, is because they don't want to make it a war. Uh, they're, uh, a they're, I would war. say they're more than a little reluctant on that. Yeah. Uh, Charles, switching to the conservative race now, um, uh, were you surprised to see this nasty kind of war of words between Polyevra and Patrick Brown? You know, politics can be pretty uh, messy, and it can be, um, <laughs> you got to have a thick skin for it. And certainly Patrick Brown's been through a bunch of battles in his past, but I didn't expect it to be so quick and so furious <laughs> right from the get-go. I mean, the, the guy just declared, and he was already, the negative ads were out. So they're preparing, and uh, they eat their own. I, I'm sorry, John, I don't mean to be flipping about it, but it's vicious. And we um, tend to want to respect our leaders and, and ensure that every, you know, don't air your dirty laundry in public, but they're all accusing one another of lying and of being not, you know, of not being trustworthy. And that really builds doubt in terms of what will they do next. I mean, Pierre, he's got, he's got a, he's an aggressive manner. He has a quick tongue, but he's a bit gimmicky, right? He plays cheap tricks, but he's effective. He's effective when he's most negative. And that's the part that is going to be very dangerous, I think, for him when he tries to be a nation builder. Sheree, he's the, he is a nation builder, but he's no longer the darling. He's a bit long in the tooth, and he's low energy right now, and being sick doesn't help. Patrick Brown could be the guy. You can't underestimate him. He can sign up a ton of people. And he, uh, you know, he's now promoting his family. He's promoting himself as fearsome and as a winner. But uh, they all carry some baggage. And this is going to be an interesting fight. And... I am enjoying, I must admit, watching it. Well, uh, Anna Bailao, do you think that uh, Jean Charest is uh, sort of above the fray in this, or uh, is he missing out on an opportunity to put the gloves on? Um, you know, I, I think that this whole thing that happened in the first few days of Patrick Brown jumping uh, into the leadership, it's actually a symptom of what's been happening in the party and the the deep uh, divide that exists inside the party and how this party is after such a, this kind of leadership is actually going to be able to rebuild itself. It might actually start becoming a theme that might eventually help John Charette because people are going to look at this, even conservatives. And it's like, Oh my God, this is vicious. Like, yes, we need to think about electing a leader, but we need to think how to lead the nation after. And, and this is just out of this world. So I think in, in that sense, um, uh, you know, he, he, he might benefit uh, a bit from that as well. Um, I think that the fact that him and Patrick Brown are a lot more moderate, I think eventually um, there, there might be some collaboration, uh, you know, in the last few days or few hours of, of the vote between those two. That's, that's what I see. Um, but, but I agree with Charles. I think, I think Patrick Brown is definitely one to watch. I think the energy that he had when he launched his campaign, the organizing capabilities that he's able to tap into, the way that he taps into, um, all kinds of different communities and voters that are usually, um, many times not conservative voters and areas of, of the country that, you know, might not be as willing uh, to vote conservative. I think it, it'll be a, it'll be a, um, an interesting one to watch for sure. Well, um, what's interesting, I mean, he has an incredible gr- ground game. That's how he won the provincial 
leadership. Uh, uh, he can sign up all kinds of people, but it's Ontario. Uh, is that going to translate into a push across the country, John? Well, that's what I think is yet to be seen is, is that level of organization. You know, there's, there's no question people that know Patrick know that he is a hard, one of the hardest working politicians. It's been proven time and time again. And, and certainly his, you know, rise to, to the lead, to lead the Ontario PC party was, you know, was, was incredible because no one have never thought, saw that coming until at the very end. And, and so there is a sense of, of his organizational skills, but the way the party leadership is set up, you have to, have, it's a pointed system. So it's not a question of how many members you sign up in one specific province. It's how many you sign up across 338 riding. So that's yet to be seen, but I wouldn't underestimate Patrick. The other thing, too, just on the fighting, look, every leadership um, worth its salt uh, is going to have battles, and people are going to go into the corners with their elbows up. It's, it's, for, it's high-stakes politics, no matter if you're running for, for mayor, if you're running for council, if you're running for leader of any party. So I'm not surprised by it. You know, the Liberals have had their fair share of fights and, and, uh, and so forth over the course of the last little while. So, you know, it's to be expected. I would say, as, as somebody who, who's following this closely, that they should focus on the opposition and less on themselves, because all of this fighting gets, you know, gets the opposition, um, you know, riled up and also allows for them to have commercials during the next election uh, when whoever ends up winning uh, gets, gets, you know, wins with some level of, 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 of attacks uh, attached to them. Okay, let's take a call from Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Hello, Libby. I'm glad to see you back. Thank you. Glad um, to be back. Yeah, when you talk about the Conservatives, um, the word moderate comes up, and I think this is the only way it's not about the Conservatives voting for somebody that they think is nice. They have to vote for somebody that can actually get elected as Prime Minister of Canada. Good point. I, I don't know what, hap- <laughs> uh, what happened with your line there, uh, Ron. I'm going to let you go. It was pretty noisy. Uh, that uh, leads me right into my next question for Charles. And we uh, had an interesting conversation uh, with guest host Jane Brown with Daryl Bricker. And he said, you know what? Um, don't listen to the Ottawa Press Gallery. All this talk about moderates uh, versus people who are more conservative. That is where the party is at. And these uh, so-called more moderate people, more socially moderate, certainly uh, they're, uh, they're not going to make it in the party. Charles, what what do you say to that? Oh, it may be the case, and so be it. So the it's not a progressive conservative; it's a conservative party. It's a it's a fallout of the reform party. Um, it's uh, where the the you know where where some of the more right wing exists, and that's okay. Um, that's the who that's that's their values, and that's how they want to promote themselves. So be it. But I know that there are many progressive conservatives, a number of individuals who are more centric. Who, who appreciates the role of government and also appreciates the, uh, the, the, the freedom and the democracy to compete. And it's that balance that we are trying to achieve and to be fiscally responsible while being socially conscious on those matters. And there's a lot of people, a lot of Canadians feel that way. Um, it, you know, we'll see. Perhaps it, in Ontario is what a lot of them say. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't really want to paint the, the, the political spectrum uh, because we all want to say that we're centric, we're all big tents, liberals and and conservatives, be it as it may. But there's extreme factions, and that's the worry that I think is happening here. The extremes are taking over. Uh, I don't know why you're worried about it, Charles, because uh, the word is that it can only uh, benefit liberals. Well, you know, I am looking at this as a Canadian, though, and I recognize that there is going to be a change of power. I want that leader to be someone that reflects the benefits of values, uh, not values, who am I to say what's, what's the right term, but somebody that espouses what I believe is important for our future. You know, Are you saying that you don't think Trudeau will get another term? I'm saying that everyone has their time. And, uh, you know, three wins uh, is kind of the, the mark. Who knows? I think Justin is also, like Patrick Brown, you can't underestimate. He, he's a guy who makes it happen. He deliberates. He doesn't take the easy path at times. And uh, and he he makes things happen. So and if the conservatives don't have an adequate opposition, he'll win again, uh, and that's okay by me. But if he doesn't, I want to make certain that we have a strong leader for that... who's looking at Canada and who's looking at nation building. Hmm. I don't want I don't want Donald Trump in Canada. I don't want that guy. 
I, but that's me personally, and I believe many in Canada feel the same way. Okay, well, uh, we, we'll take a call from Carolyn in Halliburton. Hi, Carolyn. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Um, just a quick comment. I guess I would be considered a conservative and probably a moderate one. I was really looking forward to this race and seeing what the candidates had to say. But if they're going to start off by scoring off each other, um, they are sort of off my list. I want to hear from someone who's going to bring the party together and help to um, help the country, basically. I want to hear what their plans are. I don't want to hear them call each other names. And if that's going to be the way this is going to go, uh, the Conservatives haven't a hope. As my husband says, they're too stupid to rule. Um, <laughs> and uh, a further, just a quick question regarding sanctions. Have we sent the children and the relatives of the Russian oligarchs back to Russia, or are they still here going to school and functioning? Uh, I I don't know how many children of oligarchs are in Canada. The sanctions are supposed to prevent them from doing that. I would guess that most of them are in places like London. Um, So uh, the answer is the sanctions are supposed to prevent that for the people who are on the list. I don't remember the exact number, but there are quite a few hundreds of people on that list here in Canada. Now, the other caveat, and it's also a caveat in terms of our policy of letting every Ukrainian in, there's usually a ridiculously long lag time between the time they announce something and the time that it is actually put into practice. And tomorrow, I hope to follow up on the fact that there actually are some hurdles for Ukrainians trying to come here in terms of uh, visas or biometrics or whatnot. So the answer is, uh, that's the theory. And is it all in practice and done yet? I don't know, Carolyn. I just feel that if we sent their families home, their children back to Russia, that that would score, uh, if not the same points, but maybe even greater points with the oligarchs when you start affecting their families. They have enough money and have it hidden everywhere that they'll survive financially, but uh, well, that's, uh, they that, can't get the Western education anywhere else but over here. But yeah, that is certainly the hope, Caroline. Whether it has taken effect yet, we will try to check. Thanks very much. Thank you. Uh, where were we? Anna Bailao. So uh, Charles intimated that he sees Polyevra as a Canadian Trump. Would you agree with that? I would. And and I, 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 I agree with Charles 100% that, you know, he might represent a lot of um, uh, the conservatives inside the party. But the question remains, will Will that be the way to to represent most Canadians? And and um, having that divisive kind of politics um, up here, I don't. I, I I still believe that the majority of Canadians um, would not want that. Um, I think there's obviously many people looking for different policies, uh, different ways to uh, to run government. Um, but I I I still believe that. Um, the majority of Canadians would not want to have that kind of divisive politics in here. Time will tell, um, but I, I that that that's my belief. Yeah, John. Uh, again, speaking to what uh, uh, Daryl Bricker was saying yesterday, that really the party is kind of the old Reform Party, harder right, and uh, this kind of tearing apart that we've seen is uh, what's going to happen if anybody tax moderate well no listen i i, I hear where where daryl is is going and he obviously is quite learned on this this kind of stuff but as a guy that was a former progressive conservative and was very active in the, in the emerging of the two legacy parties the reform and the conservative to what is now the conservative party i can tell you that there's a lot of people that are from from the reform that were in the party and from the progressive conservative wing there's there's no doubt there's a lot there's a mixture and you, you get that level of 
of you know positioning whenever you get into power, as we saw with, with Stephen Harper. But I just want to remind uh, everybody that when Stephen Harper first became leader of the Conservative Party, everybody thought that he was a right wing guy from Alberta. You know, I remember running as a candidate and being called a fascist at the doors uh, as a result of that. And he became a very successful prime minister. And then I flipped to Ontario when Mike Harris became the leader of the Conservative Party. And everybody ruled him to be the Attila the Han, the small town golf pro. And he became a very successful uh, premier in Ontario. So you can't judge. And very divisive. Based on that. Well, divisive in some sense, but also but he, he ran a province and he fixed the province after five years of NDP rule. But now all I'm saying is that, yes, it, Pierre Polyvab is probably more right than the other two, being Sheree and, and Patrick Brown. But that's what leadership debates are about. It's about having discussions. And I agree with your former caller, Caroline, who said that they should be less focusing on themselves and more focusing on what they can do to bring the party back to power. And that's something they should be focusing on. And I agree with her on that. Anna Bailao. So uh, there is one woman in the race so far, Leslyn Lewis. She is considered a social conservative. Uh, she's a very accomplished woman of color. Uh, I don't know. Does she stand a chance in your opinion? And what do you make of her candidacy? Well, I think it's important. I think that, again, when you have leadership uh, races, um, it, it's not only about uh, the person that is going to win, but it's the conversations that you have inside the party, the policies that you bring forward, the ideas that you bring forward. And I think it is important to have a diverse range of candidates, diverse voices to have these discussions. So it doesn't become just, you know, the um, the very vicious attacks on candidates, but there's actually a discussion about how the party wants to proceed. And so I think she, she's an extremely important voice in this conversation. Do I think that she has a ton of of chances compared with, you know, the fundraising capabilities, uh, um, uh, uh, organizing capabilities of our, our other, other candidates. It's hard, but I, do I think that it's extremely important to have her participate? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. She, she raised two million bucks the last time. That's not yeah, chicken feet. It, it, it's, it's significant. And I, and, and, you know, I, I, I think it, it also shows that uh, there are a lot of uh, conservatives that are not, you know, the extremists that we hear so much of in the media, which which I think it's it's important. Well, she's socially conservative. I I think for a lot of uh, people on the other end of the spectrum, that's almost synonymous with right wing or whatever. She's not is, you know, she's not the the liberal candidate at all. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But it is I think it is um you know it is important to get those conversations going as well. Um in because the party I think the party is so much looking for its soul as well. The amount of leadership that we've had inside the party, the amount of like they they have to make a, if they want to get to power, they have to have the tough conversations and understand the different factions that exist and how they're going to move forward as one party and bring the party together. And so, have the conversations about the policy. Have the conversations about the the difficult issues instead of the vicious vicious attacks that just on on each other's candidates. Charles Souza, what do you make of her candidacy? And also, uh, she's being sued by a former campaign manager who uh, is a frequent guest on this show. Is is that going to come into play at all? Um, I think, and I agree with Anna that uh, it's great to have that diversity and certainly the debate and uh, and, this, and and something beyond just. Um, well, frankly, I'm, I'm what I what I'm looking for in these leaders um, is someone that will quell misinformation. I mean, the stuff about QAnon, the pedophiles, the stuff about WEF, they feed on that fear. And some of them will use it for the purposes of getting elected. And like John said, they'll, normally they'll rise to the occasion and they can be a very effective leader once they become elected. But in the meantime, they are still promoting some of this discourse. Uh, in terms of, uh, of, uh, of Lesson Lewis and the issue, I'm not, I'm not keeping up with, the, the the legal issues, but I do welcome her engagement. Okay, well that sounds uh, very interesting, John. Now, kind of what's what's the next phase of this? Do the Twitter battles continue? 
I, I think it's. I think they're going to end. Quite frankly, I think they're going to start hearing from from people like Caroline and others, uh, your your former caller, who are going to probably send notes and say how just you know how how turned off they are. So I think it behooves them to sort of you know get back into focusing on their own respective races and and, and signing up members and, and less on this this kind of stuff. So I do hope it, it stops. But people like me and others will say publicly that it's nonsense and they should focus on their own campaign. So it'll it'll calm down and they'll start focusing on on membership sales, which is what they have to do until I think the cutoff is June the 4th or something or other, and then it gets into the persuasion side of the leadership campaign. Anna, uh, one of the criticisms of Jean Charest is that he's kind of yesterday's guy. He He's not a big social media person, and uh, his organization is perhaps old-fashioned, those being kind of technical considerations versus substance. So what do you think of his chances? Um, again, I think it'll depend a lot on how the other candidates are going to behave as well. Um, because if they continue the way that it is, it's what I was trying to say is exactly what happened with Caroline. Like people are going to be turned off and they're going to be looking like, okay, who's the statesman in here? Who's the adult in the room? Who's going to be the person? And so all those things that, yes, they can be drawbacks because if you have a candidate that can bring those values and it's a lot more enthusiastic, they, they would have an advantage. But aside from that, they would, they, you know, they, they, they could consider it. I was, I was disappointed with, with his, the way that he announced his, uh, his uh, leadership race. I, I thought it was, yeah, very boring <laughs> to say the least. Um, uh, but he does that. He does have that statesman experience uh, that might be appealing to a lot of people, given everything that is happening in the party. So uh, it'll be interesting to see how uh, how this uh, will work out in his favor as well. And, and given that, as Charles pointed out, uh, very likely Justin Trudeau might be past his best before date. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't. Okay. <laughs> okay, I paraphrased you, Charles. Oh, vote, vote liberal. Okay, let's. Uh, everybody gets twenty seconds to wrap up. Charles, you go first. You know, Zelensky spoke very well today. There is a message that he's giving us, though, and that is we're all responsible. He says our ch- our children are dying in Ukraine. Don't stand back. You got to step up. And now we're doing our bit, but he says if you don't bring in the planes, we share the blame, and that's what I'm hearing from him. Mm-hmm. And you agree? It's the, that's the, that's the dilemma. Are we prepared to put up a, are we prepared to fight Russia? That's what we're, that's what he's asking for us. And I'm getting to the point where I think we should send the planes. John, 20 seconds. Yeah, I was really impressed with President Zelensky's uh, comments. I think that we all should take them to heart and do what we can to, to help uh, our Ukrainian friends, uh, both here and abroad. Um, the other thing too, I would say, uh, Libby, is just that the restrictions are going to be, uh, uh, coming down in, uh, in Ontario over the next little while, and we'll see how that plays out. But hopefully, we'll have a good summer, uh, and uh, and we'll be able to enjoy some some resemblance of a free summer. Anna Bailao, last twenty seconds to you. Yeah, I I think uh, President Zaleski did address the parliament, but most of all, he addressed residents of all other countries that he's been doing this. He can, it's so clear that he's not only addressing parliamentarians, he's addressing the residents because it, it touches us. And I think that he's being effective that way because we can all feel the need to go stronger and, and to be beside Ukrainians because we can all see each other right there. Okay, thank you so much, Charles Souza, John Capobianco, and Anna Bailao. Really appreciate it and talk soon. Bye bye. Thank Cheers, you. Okay, we are going to take a break, and when we come back, we'll talk a little more about Zelensky's speech and this whole issue uh, over a no fly zone. Would it really mean World War Three? And what about what about Putin's threats to use? nuclear warfare. We'll have that when we come back. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. President Volodymyr Zelensky has just addressed a joint session of parliament asking for more help. He renewed his call for support for a no-fly zone, and that is a demand that NATO members insist would trigger World War III. 
This despite the fact that a growing number of people would support the move. A new Leger poll suggests nearly three-quarters of Canadians believe NATO allies should prepare for military intervention as Russian aggression escalates in Ukraine, and thus even as half of the respondents hold out hope for diplomatic resolution. Well, People, what do you think? Should we have a no-fly zone and send our planes there? What is the risk in doing that? The numbers, 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Oral Brown, Professor of International Relations and Political Science at the University of Toronto and the Center uh the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University, and Dr. Eric Ouellette, professor in the Department of Defense Studies at the Royal Military College of Canada. Thank you so much, both of you. Appreciate your time. Thank you. So Thank you. let us begin with Dr. Brown. Uh, first of all, your your thoughts on Zelensky's speech. It was a powerful address where he basically said to the West, you tell us that you are supporting us, but you need to convert us to concrete results. You have to do more. Uh, Among the things he asked for was this maximalist uh, request that uh, the entire airspace over Ukraine should be closed to Russia. This is unlikely to happen, but there's so many more things that could be done. Let me point out, that three prime ministers from Europe are traveling by train, Poland, the Czech Republic, and Slovakia, to go to Kiev to be there in solidarity with the president and the government of Ukraine. That is symbolic, but it is something that sends an unequivocal message to Russia that Ukraine will not be abandoned. Well, uh, there are a lot of people who say that Ukraine has been abandoned. Dr. Ouellette, uh, your impression of the speech? Uh, well, it was uh, pretty much as uh, most people expected in terms of asking for help and uh, presenting in a very uh, uh, emotional way uh, the, what's going on in Ukraine. However, I noticed one interesting uh, little detail that uh, when he asked for the no-fly zone, he did not uh, mention the Russian Air Force as being the problem, but focused on cruise missiles coming uh, to uh, the Ukrainian airspace. And that's an interesting detail because I think he understands that um, air-to-air combat between NATO pilots and Russian pilots is obviously a no-no. But uh, NATO pilots shooting down unmanned missiles, uh, that might be okay uh, in his presentation to the, the wider public in the West, although it would lead to the same problems in the end. But he adjusted a little bit his pitch. I, I found it quite interesting. Hmm. Dr. Braun, uh, is, is the objection to a no-fly zone as strong as it was when the conflict started? And can you explain the rationale for people say that that's World War III and that's probably nuclear war? The problem, of course, is that Vladimir Putin tells us that if we don't lift sanctions, that could be World War III as well. He said that sanctions are an act of war. Uh, He has been suggesting any involvement, any help could be something that leads to nuclear war. He has put his nuclear forces on a higher alert. So in a sense, he is already using nuclear blackmail. And we absolutely want to avoid a conflict uh, with Russia, a conflict anywhere, if if possible. But it is not uh, necessarily up to us. I mean, Russia has chosen to attack unprovoked a sovereign state It has annexed illegally parts of that sovereign state. It is trying to utterly destroy the government of that uh, sovereign state. And NATO, faced with a remnant of a superpower, and that's what Russia is, which I should point out a GDP that in normal terms is roughly comparable to that of Italy's. And here is the largest, most powerful alliance in human history that for too long has played the helpless, feckless, giant. We should never have allowed the situation to arise. Uh, how do we get here? 
we stopped Ukraine of defensive armaments. Mr. Biden sent something like 270 javelins to uh, Ukraine before the conflict. Why did he not send the 17,000 uh, anti-tank weapons that were sent afterwards? That might have made a difference. Why did we not transfer aircraft to Ukraine so they could better defend themselves prior to this conflict? The Biden administration has said repeatedly that they knew an invasion was coming. Well, what did they do about it exactly? Dr. Willett, um, do you, I mean, I, uh, what I take from this is that nobody is willing to call Vladimir Putin's bluff on the nuclear issue. Uh, are, is the West just being too cautious there? Well, um, I, I don't think so, because um, the uh, the Russians and Mr. Putin especially, they put everything they've got in this operation. Uh, this is for them the, 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 the recreation of a great Russia. There's no turning back. And so um, the, uh, the threat of a nuclear war is probably the, uh, the ultimate card in Mr. Putin's hands. So you don't want to go there, and that's that's why this issue of a no-fly zone is so problematic for NATO. You don't want to start World War III, as you just mentioned. Well, and there are some people who say, actually, it may have already started. I mean, what started World War One? Yes, uh, although the, this time around, I would say both sides, uh, NATO and the Russians, are actually well aware of the risk of a nuclear war. Which uh, in World War One, uh, the, these people had uh, really no uh, idea of the, the catastrophe that would unfold in the, the following four years. So there's a bit of a difference here. Hope so, um, Doctor Brown. Do you, uh, Doctor Willette noted the change in the speech from shooting down Russian planes to shooting down unmanned uh, missiles? Uh, do you see that as significant as well? It, it, it's a possibility, but I would suggest respectfully that we should get away from this um, kind of fixation on a no-fly zone, which indeed may be risky, may involve a direct confrontation. There's so much more that the West can and ought to be doing to help Ukraine. There's so much more we could do even in terms of sanctions. We have not leveled all the sanctions that we could have against Russia. We could stop the flow of goods going in and out of Russia. Much of it goes through uh, land territory. Um, we could do much more in terms of transferring uh, anti-aircraft uh, uh, defenses into Ukraine. We could do far more in terms of uh, uh, providing more economic aid uh, to Ukraine. So there are many areas where we can look at uh, helping Ukraine, which have uh, areas that have not been fully explored. But what is also crucial is that we need to have an overall strategy. We must get away from this kind of defeatist attitude that uh, somehow there is an inevitability about Russian victory because Mr. Putin is just not going to give up. Uh, he has given up before. Uh, he may be a ruthless, but he's not a reckless leader. He wants to survive. He doesn't want a nuclear war. Uh, in a nuclear war, everyone will uh, perish. He is not uh, a theocrat who hopes for some reward in an afterlife. He wants to enjoy the good life on Earth. So there are limits to how far he's going to go. And the only major Western leader who has enunciated a strategy so far is Boris Johnson of Britain, who said that Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine must fail and must be seen to fail. And that is, we need to restore deterrence. Western deterrence has failed. We need to understand that. If Western deterrence had not failed, there would be no invasion. But we did not do what should have been done. We need to get back, restore that deterrent. It's going to be very hard. It's never risk-free. But if we operate under the belief that uh, somehow Russia cannot be turned around, 
that uh, the casualties that uh, Russia is suffering would not have a sufficient effect, that the sanctions are not enough, then we may as well just uh, quit and hand everything over. But obviously, most of the governments have not yet uh, conceded defeat, and there's no reason to concede defeat. Okay, uh, we've got to take a break. We will be back with more on uh, the very, very current situation in Ukraine on the other side of the break. Before we go to break, the numbers to call if you have a comment. Should we be doing more? Should we give President Zelensky his no-fly zone that he wants so much? Is it too dangerous? The numbers four one six three six zero zero seven forty. Toll free one eight six six seven forty four seven forty. And we'll be back on the other side of the break. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. And this just in, Prime Minister Trudeau, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie, Defence Minister Anita Anand are among multiple Canadians who have just been banned from Russia. And of course, the Deputy Prime Minister Christian Freeland was banned a long time ago. So I'm not sure what difference that might make. Before the break, we were talking about making sure that Putin is defeated. Dr. Willett, doesn't he need an exit strategy? Doesn't the West have to, uh, you know, allow him one if this thing is going to end? Well, uh, I agree, yes, but we're not there yet. Uh, the, the Russians are still thinking that they can prevail, and they're really putting everything they've got into the conflict. So, uh, yes, uh, there's possibilities of, of a peace agreement of some sort uh, if, if Ukraine is giving, willing to give up something. But uh, we're not at that point now, uh, and I would say we're quite away from, from that point because uh, for that to happen, the, the Russian military would have to be really... Uh, entering some sort of quagmire with long, long-term commitments. And then in Russia, among the elite, there would be some very serious pressure on Putin to to change the course of uh, his uh, um, goals. And then, uh, yes, but we're, we're not there yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, how do you see, Dr. Willette, where they are at militarily? I mean, some of the the commentary I've seen from the states, like these former uh, generals saying, oh, it's a terrible army. They don't know what they're doing. Uh, I, I don't know. what. Do you, where are they at militarily? Well, uh, for sure, the Ukrainians surprised everyone by being a lot better than expected. And the Russians also surprised everyone by being... Uh, not as good as we thought. Um, the, the, why is that? Because in the last uh, 10 years or so, the Russian army went through uh, massive uh, modernization and to some degree professionalization. But uh, we can see that their, the way that they operate, their command structures have not changed that much. They're very uh, top-down, uh, highly centralized, not flexible. And for them to operate uh, in dispersed ways in cities is very complicated because you have to be able to have low-level initiatives by local commanders, and they clearly don't have this. Uh, if, if I may, uh, the, uh, for those who have seen the video of those bunch of tanks that were attacked by the uh, Ukrainian artillery and eventually uh, went back, um, this is classic stuff. Um, all those tanks were there. They waited to get orders from their senior headquarters while they're being shelled by the Ukrainians. And finally, they got the order, then they moved back. They decided to retreat. Western troops would have immediately dispersed and started to plan our, uh, a course to, to go through another way. And just informing headquarters that, okay, if we do that, which the quarter would say yes or no, depending on the situation. If you multiply this kind of situation by hundreds every day uh, across the front, you can see that uh, a military is far less effective. What about the information and misinformation war, Dr. Brown? Uh, uh, on both sides, we see 
Russians, you know, we saw the the TV employee who uh, got herself probably arrested in a very bad place by posting that sign behind an anchor. But but we we keep seeing clips from Russians who who don't believe that uh, what's happening is actually happening. We must understand that dictatorships look very stable until all of a sudden they stop being stable. And so dictatorships will have the advantage that they control the media. Most Russians get their information from television. And uh, the government uh, in Russia controls that television. They have been indoctrinating uh, the population. They have used propaganda for many years. Vladimir Putin has appealed to the worst instincts uh, rather than best instincts of the instincts of the Russian people. And so it should not be surprising that a great many people in Russia believe that propaganda. But there are cracks in it. And this is how dissent happens. This is when we look at the history of Eastern Europe. The dissidents tended to be small in number. They were extraordinarily courageous people. And what they said did not resonate immediately, but it became embedded into the psychology of the population. And then when the collapse came, all those ideas turn out to have been sitting in, if you like, in the subconscious of the population, because now people like Václav Havel, who was part of this tiny group in Czechoslovakia, or Charter 77, was viewed as a hero by the vast majority of people. And so when you look at uh, individuals such as Marina Ovsiannikova, who very bravely held up a sign saying, and she uh, is one of the editors on the main program, that uh, uh, what you hear on Russian television is propaganda. These are lies. That was an extraordinary uh, brave act. Uh, A uh, presenter on television who was viewed as someone who had been a supporter for some time of President Vladimir Putin, uh, Lilia Gildieva, left the country. So these are bad signs of cracks in the system that uh, ultimately could prove to be very, very powerful. But what needs to happen is that Russia needs to lose on the ground. Uh, If Vladimir Putin prevails in Ukraine, then dissent is not likely to coalesce into a system-changing effect. However, if he begins to lose, not even lose outright, begins to lose, all those voices, uh, the mothers of the soldiers, and they have an organization uh, uh, in Russia which has been partly infiltrated by the FSB, but nonetheless, when they go out to protest, that will uh, that will resonate. And on the ground, the Russian army is not performing uh, as well as people thought. Uh, and uh, they are not 10 feet tall. Despite that modernization, this is still a very corrupt system. It is not just that they are poorly led and there's a top-down structure, but corruption reached into the Russian military as well. And now we have uh, uh, considerable evidence to uh, show that um, uh, some of the soldiers are not obeying orders. Some of them have disabled their own vehicles because they don't want to participate. Some have surrendered. So the longer Ukraine can hold out, the more all of these elements come into play. Doctor, and this is why it's so crucial to keep providing an increasing help to the Ukrainians to resist. Uh, Dr. Ouellette, uh, how much evidence have you seen that some of the soldiers are not doing what they're told? Also, I was reading that we're sort of heading into a period where actually on both sides, they would have to kind of pause to be resupplied. Do you agree that that's where we're at? And what are the opportunities there? Well, I think the uh, the, the Russian soldiers having, uh, let's say, less enthusiasm happened uh, a couple of weeks ago because the, uh, they didn't expect the Ukrainian to put so much resistance because the troops had to get, you know, soldiers on foot and tanks inside cities. And they were ambushed uh, very effectively by the Ukrainians. But now the Russians have changed their tactics. They're using uh, artillery uh, missiles and rockets to destroy buildings so that they destroy resistance. So it's much easier for the troops than to come after and just do the cleanup. 
so it's less risky for them, for the Russians, to do the approach it that way. So I would think that there's probably less um, misgiving. And we have to be careful. In time of war, all those reports have to be uh, taken with a pinch of salt unless they're really verified. And um, uh, so, so that, that's kind of the situation where we're entering now that they're really leveling cities to make this easier for them. Um, so I, I, I don't see uh, that uh, the Russians are about to give up right now. Definitely the, the signs are not there. Mm-hmm. And is, is this a period where both sides kind of have to resupply? A pause? Um, supplies is a, a thing that's normally happening in, happening in an ongoing way. Uh, what the Russians have been doing, uh, especially around uh, Kiev, is to get the troops that were stuck in the north to redeployed, and so they can actually uh, advance into Kiev. I think we start we've seen the start of that, uh, but resupply is an ongoing thing. Russian the Russian army has uh, is known to have problems to resupply uh, troops because they have a different system, and which is not always very effective, but. Um, the, the pause is more to regroup troops, not so much to get resupplies, per se. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do you see as the next phase, Dr. Brown? It depends a great deal on whether Ukraine can, uh, can hold on. Uh, uh, yes, you know, they are bombing cities. But, you know, what we know from uh, previous wars, including World uh, War II, that you create a lot of rubble and so on. Uh, but then that uh, can also give advantage to defenders. You have to send the troops in, and they have to fight uh, battles in the city, and that is an entire different kind of uh, situation, and uh, um, they will take a huge number of casualties if Ukraine can hold on. And I think this is what Zelensky basically wants, to make sure that they're able to hold on, that the sanctions can really begin to bite that uh, Russia is taking more losses, that uh, at some point China itself might begin to distance itself from Russia because uh, they're a junior but losing uh, partner. So uh, time is, is absolutely of essence. And what the Russians would like to do is they would like to wrap this up as quickly as possible because the longer it lasts, the more risks there are for Russia uh, itself, the more risks to the Putin regime, the more doubt there may be within uh, uh, the elites, uh, whether it is the security elites or the military elites uh, and the economic elites. Dr. Ouellette, uh, last words to you. Uh, they're talking. I mean, what would they be talking about? Um, a partition of Ukraine? It doesn't sound like Zelensky would agree to that. No, not at all. Uh, the, the, the Russians have put their uh, the stickers on the ground just to get the ceasefire. Uh, accepting the annexation of, of uh, Crimea, accepting the uh, the independent republics in the Donbass, and uh, changing their constitution with uh, no not joining NATO and the EU. That was for the Russians. It's just the starting of negotiation, and it will ask for more. So disbanding the uh, Ukrainian military, probably have elections where Russians will have to vouch who's running. I mean, they would put that kind of conditions uh, right now. So what uh, what Ukraine needs to do is exactly that, is to hold as long as possible so then the price to pay for Russia is higher and higher. So then they will lower the bar in terms of what they want for a ceasefire. Okay, uh, that is all the time we had. Fascinating conversation. Thank you so much, Dr. Eric Willette and Dr. Oral Brown. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And that is all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.